This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 6, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. As a March deadline for Brexit approaches, what should be the elements of a post-EU deal for Great Britain? Large internal divisions seem somewhat intractable, and no consensus has emerged on trade, foreign policy, and other critical issues. Cato's Ryan Bourne and Emma Ashford comment. Well, last Tuesday was a huge day in Parliament uh, in terms of Brexit votes. And two key things happened. First of all, attempts to kind of slow down Brexit by delaying the process, extending the Article 50 period of negotiations. Um, That was defeated in Parliament by a combination of the the government combined with uh, Brexiteers and the Democratic Unionist Party who um, back up the Conservative government in a confidence and supply arrangement. And I think what that indicated was that a lot of the people that want to soften Brexit or kind of frustrate it, delay it for a given period of time, are hopelessly divided themselves about what they see as a potential alternative to, to the route that we've been going. So some of them want the UK to remain within the single market, some want a customs union, others want a second referendum and, and the option of remaining. So they were unable to kind of come together to defeat the the government and, and the Brexiteers on either extending or, or overturning Brexit for now. Um, now, the, the, the vote that the government won that was the important vote was that they amended their initial motion on the withdrawal deal such that um, if the backstop, the, the motion said if the backstop was taken out of the existing withdrawal agreement, the House of Commons has voted to say that it would pass the withdrawal deal. That was the motion that was put forward called the Brady motion. And why is this important? Well, it's given Theresa May a bit of a mandate to go back to the EU and say, okay, look, the main problem that the parliament has with the withdrawal agreement we've come up with so far is the fact that um, within that deal, we have a provision that says unless we can come to an agreement on how to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, then the whole of the UK would remain within a joint customs territory with the EU and Northern Ireland itself would be subject to specific uh, checks and economic regulations that would apply to the whole island of Ireland. Now, that was regarded as unacceptable by, by Brexiteers for two key reasons. First of all, because there was no um, exit mechanism from it. Uh, the only way that the UK as a whole could come to other arrangements in terms of, of its customs uh, would be if the EU agreed that there was an acceptable alternative to keeping the hard border open. So it was regarded as, as permanent and indefinite if, if the UK couldn't agree to something else. Perhaps more importantly, and something that's not talked about as much, a lot of Brexiteers thought that that would prejudice the actual future trading relationship that the UK might want to agree with the EU. So it would force the UK, in essence, into a softer form of Brexit. So this is where we are. The UK Prime Minister has now gone to the EU and said, look, the Parliament doesn't like the backstop. Is there something more or something different we can do with this? Can we get a legally binding change to the text? As yet, the European Union, at least publicly, doesn't appear particularly um, open to that prospect, and it may well get kicked back to the Parliament for another vote next week. But for now, she's got that mandate, and she's trying to reopen negotiations on that aspect of the deal. Okay, so to you, Emma, I remember when Brexit was just being debated and uh, when it actually happened. I know you were shocked. You were extremely shocked. And uh, you were not a Brexiteer. 
and there was discussion about Scotland remaining uh, while the rest of Great Britain exited. What does this new potential for a independence vote uh, in Scotland, you know, where does that stand? What is that? What do you think of that? Well, one of the reasons why I thought that leave uh, was probably the wrong option for people in the referendum was because there are big sort of security issues, issues of geostrategic importance, geopolitical importance, that the economic arguments for Brexit never really took into account. So we can all agree that the European Union's regulatory frameworks are really terrible, that it would be better if Britain was uh, freed from those. But the European Union also helps to solve some political problems that existed. And so one of the reasons many people voted against Scottish independence the first time around when we had that referendum in 2014 was because they were told that Scotland would not be admitted back into the European Union. This would harm our trade uh, relationship. So fast forward a few years, and now people in Scotland who overwhelmingly voted remain rather than leave are basically being told, well, we're all leaving the European Union and we're leaving together. So There has actually been a little pressure for a new independence referendum. The Scottish First Minister is actually here in Washington today, said that her government may make some announcements on that after the the March 29th uh, deadline for Brexit. Uh, But I want to come back to the, the backstop question, because I think that this is the other geopolitical question that people basically failed to wrestle with entirely in the run up to the Brexit referendum. And that's the question of how the Northern Irish peace process fits in here, because we're talking about this as if it's all about customs and it's all about uh, you know regulatory compliance. Really what it's about is the fact that nobody in Northern Ireland and nobody in Ireland, the government in Dublin, nobody is really willing to accept a return to a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. There's a risk of returning to some of the political problems, uh, some of the unrest that characterised that relationship before the Good Friday Agreement. So on that point, both sides, um, the UK, the Irish government and the European Union at various stages have intimated and tried to reassure populations on both sides that they would do whatever it takes to keep the border open, irrespective of whether there's a deal or not. The difficulty is whether in, in actuality you can deliver that if you are going to have different economic regulations and customs procedures, whatever. So I think Emma is right that on balance... Most customs experts seem to believe that you would have to have a degree of physical checks at the border if there weren't streamlined customs arrangements and and other uh, streamlined economic uh, regulations, though some people do dispute that. But it remains to be seen what would actually happen if we get to the 29th of March without a deal. And the paradox here is that the whole point of having the backstop in the withdrawal deal is to provide an insurance policy such that there would be no border, no hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. But an insurance policy is not really worth much if the whole reason that the deal isn't getting signed off because Brexiteers and the DUP refused to sign up to the backstop in the first place. Um, So I think the European Union... The rational thing to do here, the rational incentive is to push towards some sort of change in what the backstop actually means within the withdrawal deal. And I think, you know, one 
pragmatic alternative to that might be to have a time-limited default customs arrangement. It then wouldn't be a backstop. It would be something that had to be re-examined, say, in a three to five-year period. Um, but if there's goodwill on both sides, and good, both sides have said that they want to maintain an open border in Northern Ireland, I don't see why it's sticking so toughly to this line that all of this has to be agreed indefinitely in the withdrawal deal if, as is clear, that is now the main hindrance to their getting a deal over the line, why that's sacrosanct and, and why there shouldn't be some movement there. So I think a time limit on the backstop could work, at least for getting us out of the current crisis. Um, but it doesn't solve the overall problem. And as far as I have seen, there is no actual proposal that both Brussels and London would agree to on this question. I mean, I mean, in effect, what it boils down to is if you don't have a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of, of Ireland, then the entire island of, of Ireland has to be in conjunction with either the European Union's regulatory framework or whatever the UK's regulatory framework is. So, so either Northern Ireland has to be inside the EU customs zone or the Republic of Ireland, which didn't even have a referendum and isn't even involved in this process, it has to be outside the European Union's customs zone. And it's just not clear to me how you square that circle. It's a problem that whether we deal with it now or whether we deal with it five years from now, it's still going to be a problem. Mm. I th well, I think some experts have suggested that you could have a kind of hybrid combination whereby, yes, you recognise the need that there's going to have to be physical checks on goods, but those happen away from the border rather than at the border itself. So you use things like trusted trader schemes and you have uh, inspections at warehouses and, and, and all these other things combined with using existing perhaps technologies um, at certain points, miles from the border, for example. But I think you're right. If you're going to go down that route, that will inevitably entail extra checks on goods coming from Ireland to um, the European continent because of the risk of, of uh, the, the island of Ireland then being used as a backdoor for um, third-party countries to export goods into, which are then um, distributed within the single market of the European Union. So yes, I do think there are, that there are obviously key issues here. The question that I, I don't know who to trust, and I hear conflicting views all the time, is whether it would be possible to use existing technologies and ex existing customs procedures that are out there in order to facilitate as open a border as possible that both parties could be happy with, while still allowing both the, the UK and Ireland to run, in essence, different trade policies. And I don't know the answer to that. And um, and the balance of opinion seems to be with Emma on that, but there are some very big name people that have worked on customs in, in uh, WTO and, and other organizations that seem to have different views. What seems unclear to me, and obviously I don't study this, uh, this issue as closely as you have, is that I don't know what the incentive is for the EU, even if they are to revisit this backstop where they seem to hold all the cards and the relationship of uh, Great Britain to the rest of the European Union. You know, it's it's it seems that Great Britain needs the EU more than the EU needs Great Britain for the purposes of trade and uh, foreign relations. Is that true? Or is the evaporation or revisiting of this backstop going to in the end, allow Great Britain to truly be an, an independent agent? 
I think both sides benefit from there being liberal and open trade between the two. But let's remember the withdrawal agreement is not just primarily about this backstop or even about trade. The withdrawal agreement is part of the Article 50 framework and the idea is that it wraps up and codifies the obligations that the UK um, has owes to the EU in terms of uh, financial payments. It guarantees that there's a transition period through to the uh, end of December 2020. It comes to a mutual, mutually beneficial agreement on citizens' rights, UK citizens in the EU and EU citizens in the UK. And I think it would be a real shame if all of the very sensible proposals and all of the things agreed on those issues were lost because both sides weren't able to come up with some sort of compromise on this specific backstop issue. At the moment, that is the sticking point of the deal. I think the House of Commons clearly showed with its vote last week that that is, uh, if that could be changed, we'd be much, much closer in parliamentary arithmetic terms to being able to get something through. So I actually hope both sides can come up with some sort of pragmatic agreement where they where they can do something on this. The politics is incredibly difficult, though. Both sides have taken very, very entrenched views. The Brexiteers on one hand, the Irish government and the EU on, on the other. And for now, I think the cent- my central expectation is this will be kicked into next week. There'll be another round of votes in Parliament, and we may see some movement um, in, in another direction if parliamentarians begin to fear that no deal could be an even more likely outcome come the 29th of March. You know, I think we should be clear, though. Um, I usually hate to avoid recriminations in things like these, but I do think that we should be clear that the reason why this is politically so difficult, the reason why the May government has not been able to come up with a deal that pleases everybody is because during the lead up to the referendum for Brexit, promises were made by Brexiteers, the UK, uh, by European governments, all of which just simply could not be kept. Nobody talks about the Irish border. Nobody talked about the security questions inherent in sort of leaving the European Union. And a lot of things were promised, like an end to the free movement of people, the fact that we would somehow still be able to trade with the EU, but it would be, um, you know, with us in a different regulatory framework. Um, All of these things were promised and they're not all possible. So it is difficult. It is very difficult. I do not envy Theresa May trying to make this deal. Um, And Ryan is right that the backstop is now the central sticking point. But these are problems that were clearly visible before the referendum even happened. The people that argued to leave knowing that have to take some responsibility for it. I think that's right. But I think more of the blame here has to be assigned to Theresa May herself, because rather than taking one vision of Brexit or another, there were really two, only two ways to go, I think, um, after, the, after the referendum. One way would have been to, in essence, say, we accept the referendum result as a mandate to leave all the political institutions of the EU, but in essence remain within the economic institutions of the EU, the single market, and maybe the customs union uh, needn't be that, but you know, single market membership like Norway. Or we can become a third country with the EU, accept all of the consequences that that would bring, including on things like the Irish border, 
and, and we'll take steps to try and minimise the disruption there as much as possible, but recognise that there are consequences there and allow the UK to go off as, as many Brexiteers want and sign free trade deals around the world and control their own tariffs and everything else. What Theresa May has tried to do as Prime Minister is appease both sides. So she's tried to remain um, within certain frameworks and structures of the European Union's economic policy where she thinks that's favourable. She wants customs arrangements, but not to be within a customs union. She wants to end free movement. Uh, you know, she wants to um, have a, a transition period, which is in essence a standstill. But her central long-term vision of what she wanted Brexit to be is just something that, that doesn't really have champions or supporters in Parliament who are polarised between these two more extreme positions, um, remaining within the economic institutions or leaving them entirely. And given that she doesn't represent either of those viewpoints, she's getting fired out from both sides. And that's why she's found it so difficult to get anything through with the support of a majority of Parliament. Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics. Emma Ashford is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>